trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Actually thinking about a, a new intro for the show here, at least a new greeting. And it would just be simply, greetings, fellow wrong thinker. I got to give you a little bit of backstory on this. So many, many years ago, and I'm talking like 20, holy cow, 27 years ago, I uh, I started doing talk radio. I had been a music jock for a while. It's going to be the next Casey Kasem, right? With a long distance dedication. But uh, but talk radio reared its head, and I reluctantly filled in and became, uh, you know, very involved in issues and discussing things and found out it was really fun. Especially when the phone started to ring, I was like, hey, this could be a thing. And way back then, again, we're talking more than a quarter century ago, I met an individual. I'm not going to give his name because I, I don't want this to go to his head, but um, let's just say this guy was very involved in the fight for freedom. How involved? Well, thank you for asking. He was a John Birch Society member. He was uh, just a good patriotic American. I don't think there was a week that went by that I did not see letters to the editor in uh, the the local newspaper written by this individual. Um, In my church, there is uh, one Sunday each month in which uh, congregation members can basically stand up and and testify as to uh, their, you know, religious beliefs and and their the truths that they hold uh to to be personally relevant to them and this gentleman would would almost always bear testimony about uh, freedom and about uh, you know the greatness of america and god's goodness in blessing this land so i don't want it to sound like i'm picking on him I, I i want you to know i respect this man and after moving back to the twin falls idaho area which is where my talk radio career began I was very happy to find that after more than a quarter century, this guy was still at work, hard at work. I mean, he, I, I'll admit, I kind of thought he was, you know, he was getting a little up there in years back before I left. But, uh, man, he has just been tireless. And he has adapted with the times as far as, you know, how to get information out. Still writes letters to the editor, sends out emails. And this is the point I wanted to get to. His emails always begin with, good morning, patriotic American, or good afternoon, patriotic American. It's kind of old school, but I like it. And I'm thinking that maybe I should be uh, showing some love for the wrong thinkers out there. Because we need more wrong thinkers. And I mean that in the sense that it's not just being a contrarian. It's not just, you know, when someone says something. But actually thinking clearly and independently for yourself about what's going on, owning your worldview. It's more important now than ever. And, uh, you know, I saw I saw a meme today that I thought to really kind of sum this up beautifully. Just shows a couple sitting there staring, apparently, at their television, and it says, no matter how long you look at the television, it's not going to tell you the truth. Think about that. You can't just passively sit back and expect somebody fill me with truth. Somebody tell me what to think. I can't even do that for you. And I love to speak the truth, but 
you'd be very foolish to, to hang your hat on me and, and to think, well, you know, if Brian says it, then obviously it must be true. I'm not going to, I'm, I'm not going to mislead you. If, if I could, if, let me put it this way. I will speak the truth as I best understand it, but I clearly don't have all the answers. So what I'm getting at is there's a responsibility that falls on every single one of us to, to go out there and sort fact from fiction. Now it's time consuming. And I'm guessing you're probably a busy, productive member of society. So it's not like you have all the time in the world to just kind of sit around and study these things and discuss it with fellow philosophers and who knows, maybe uh, gesture to the gesture to the sky and, uh, you know, hold uh, your, your toga with one hand as you orate, you know, to the masses. Ain't nobody got time for that, right? But uh, the bottom line is you cannot have a clear and independent understanding of what's going on around you if you're not willing to do so. So thank you so much for being part of our audience. Thank you for being a part of the, the growing segment of society that chooses to be wrong thinkers, that chooses to be um, slightly out of step with the mainstream. Not because we're better than them, but just simply because we understand that uh, the battle for our mind is real. And I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm just here to encourage you to think as clearly and independently as possible about the world around us. Hopefully by the end of each episode, you are more certain of who you are and what you stand for than simply what makes you mad, what grinds your gears. So come find courage and camaraderie among your fellow wrong thinkers. Claim your heritage as a free individual. I do want to give a quick shout out here to my sponsors who make this program possible. They include lifesavingfood.com, monticellocollege.org, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. By the way, I have some very exciting new sponsors that are going to be joining us in in the very short-term future. Happy to be bringing them and what they have to offer to the world uh, before your eyes and ears. So you can check the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I always have a nice little section there for my sponsors with links that will get you in touch with them. But let's dive in. We've got a lot to talk about today. Um, it's not under it's it's not really hard to understand why people feel deep discouragement these days about where things seem to be headed. In fact, I don't know if you've had this conversation with people, but have you ever heard someone, particularly an older person, say, "Well, you know, things are things are going to hell in a handbasket, but I'm glad I won't be around to see it crash and burn." In fact, now that I think about it, I might even have said similar words myself. But when people say, "I'm glad I won't live to see it," There's a perspective there that uh, that they may be missing. And I came across a, a commentary from Paul Rosenberg. Now, this was written back in October of 2013. So we're talking eight years ago. Paul Rosenberg was talking about it. Things, things may have been kind of crazy in their own way eight years ago, but I don't think they were quite as intense as what we see today. But Paul Rosenberg says, you know, as far as that statement, I'm glad I won't live to see it. He says, it's a little scary how often I've been hearing that comment recently. In fact, he he gives a quote that appeared on a financial website that said, this is all going down to hell and we're all to blame for it. I'm glad that I'm old. Started maybe 10, 15 years ago before that pensioners would tell me they would love to be 20 years younger. Now they all say they're glad they aren't any younger and will soon be off this rock. (laughs) End quote. Okay, that's not the most optimistic point of view, but at the same time, I kind of get where they're going. 
the uncertainty is real. Um, the the potential for you know some really tough times I think is is ahead. That's intimidating. It scares me too. But I'm trying to maintain perspective because I believe that we are just simply following a, a an historical cycle that has played out before. Yes, I'm talking about that fourth turning methodology. But Paul Rosenberg has some reasons to not be so pessimistic. He says a certain number of people are naturally pessimistic. And some of those people might be expected to make such statements. And he says, and I'm sure that some do. But he says, that doesn't look to me like what's happening here. When someone says, well, I'm glad I won't live to see it. He says, first of all, the one common characteristic I see is that people making these statements, uh, among the people who are making these statements, is he says, they're well-informed. Think about that. Second, a good portion of them are basically optimistic people, quite willing to concede that what follows the bad passage might actually be very good. Their concern is just simply that the bad period will last too long to live through, so they would rather check out before going through it. Now, he says, personally, I don't think the bad period is going to be that bad or that long, but only time will tell. And from here, he goes into the numbers. In fact, I'm not going to delve into these before the break. We'll come back to them after the break. But, um, yeah, things are looking pretty dire right now. And I think there are, there are sources of information that actually feed that to where it's like, oh, my gosh, there's nothing we can do. In fact, every day I feel like I'm walking a little bit of a tightrope here in trying to talk about the things that are, are relevant, the things that we really should be paying attention to, stuff that, that could you know, potentially pose a danger to us and to our well-being without promoting fear or without promoting greater anger or frustration or, for that matter, pessimism. It's a, it's a tough order to fill. It really is. But I want you to know, I believe that uh, each of us, you and me and every person that you know around you, I believe we were born for this time. And if that sounds a little too uh, mystical and, uh, you know, too, too out there in the ether, I get it. But I think that uh, we are being handed an opportunity to really become the people that we were born to become. And I mean in the sense of to stand for things that are great and noble and that will be celebrated. So we'll come back to this just the other side of the break. Please stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. I do want to thank uh, my sponsors, especially uh, lifesavingfood.com. I have uh, I have been a big believer in the uh, the peace of mind that comes from being prepared. Now, look, you cannot perfectly prepare for everything. I mean, an asteroid could hit the Earth and, oh, gee, well, my food storage is going to save me. No, probably not in that case. But knowing that you have stores of food upon which you can draw, whether it's through a time of, uh, you know, unemployment or some other, you know, family catastrophe comes up, a major illness or major car repair, it's so good to have these resources to fall back on, and especially when you have things that, that you can count on being there and being edible 25 years after you buy them. 
this is the beauty of what uh, what ReadyWise uh, food storage uh, items are, are all about. Freeze-dried, dehydrated, just add water, and you are good to go. And that's what you can get through LifesavingFood.com. Now, my listeners get a 20% discount when they use the coupon code HIDE at checkout. So if you'd please follow the link that I provide in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, click on lifesavingfood.com, and just see if there's something there that could contribute to your peace of mind. Keep in mind, the supply chain issues are beginning to catch up with a lot of industries. The food storage industry is one of them. So it may take a month or more to fill those orders. Make the order anyway. Don't let yourself be caught unprepared. And with that, let's get back to Paul Rosenberg's commentary about I'm glad I won't live to see it. Now, keep in mind, this was written back in 2013. So if you want a little contrast and comparison, okay, how far have we come in the last eight years? As of 2013, Paul Rosenberg wrote wrote that uh, right now the United States is in the hole something like $200 trillion dollars. Now, he's including commitments that were owed in future years, but he says unless the system breaks, that's what they owe. That's really the number that we're dealing with. Businesses have to account for their debts that way. The total annual earnings of U.S. residents is about $13 trillion. That's only about 6.5% of what's owned. So this is what that debt load would have looked like when transferred to the scale of a typical American family. You make $50,000 per year. You owe $769,000, plus interest, of course. So good luck paying that off, especially because that $769,000 is laid on top of your mortgage, auto loans, student loans, and credit card balances. Those are the kind of numbers that the I'm glad I won't see it guys understand. They're looking at that and going, hey, these debts cannot be paid. And what happens when the system breaks could be very, very ugly. Now, of course, the problems aren't just financial. Paul Rosenberg says the entire ruling class of the world is out of control. Remember, this was eight years ago. Massively arrogant and certain to flip out at some point. So people who say, well, I'm glad I won't live to see it, fit into two camps. Number one is those who are older and who understand the breakdown process will last longer than they will. And they'll be glad to die before it gets really bad. The second group is those who expect to live long enough to make it through the collapse and into whatever comes next. Now, of course, a huge number of folks are oblivious and fit into neither one of these groups. They're the ones who will get run over by all of this just as they do every time. And Paul Rosenberg says, It's my opinion that the sharper and deeper the crash, the sooner it will be purged. The sooner we move through the welfare riots, shortages, the martial law phase. You know, if the system breaks, he says, productive people are going to get a glorious fresh start. On the other hand, if the system just declines, well, it could drag the entire culture in the direction of North Korea. But again, we shall see. Now, here's what's interesting. Thomas Jefferson despaired before the end of his life that the experiment that they had launched in the founding of America, the establishment of its constitution, and, and the, the system that was given us by the founders, he despaired that it had failed. That's within his lifetime. I think he died in 1826. Paul Rosenberg says, as it turns out, my hero Thomas Jefferson was an early hope I don't live to see it guy. But what he was concerned about wasn't a currency collapse, but it was the destruction of self-government via a civil war. Because they're always smart guys who see it coming, though they're seldom listened to. 
Here's a passage from a letter Jefferson wrote to a friend in 1820 when he was quite old. Jefferson quote, Jefferson said, quote, I regret that I am now to die in the belief that the useless sacrifice of themselves by the generation of 1776 to acquire self-government and happiness to their country is to be thrown away by the unwise and unworthy passions of their sons and that my only consolation is to be that I live not to weep over it, end quote. And Jefferson was right. Four decades later, millions of Americans were convinced to grab weapons, march in lines, and butcher each other. Now, the end result of the American Civil War, aside from wholesale death and mutilation, was the states lost nearly all of their power to Washington, D.C. After that point, any claim of self-government was purely promotional fluff. If the states who created the Union couldn't maintain their rights, how would any individual stand against the beast on the Potomac? The Civil War, and Lincoln in particular, killed the America of Jefferson, Adams, Henry, and Payne. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, I'm glad the destruction didn't happen during Jefferson's lifetime. He didn't deserve that pain, and neither do the better old folks of our time. He says, I am convinced of this, however. The more that productive people understand what's happening, the faster the fall and reset will be. And listen to the advice he gives. Okay, what can you do about it? He says, start talking to your friends and neighbors. Add deeds to your words. Don't stop. Okay, let me offer what what my meager interpretation of this is. Yes, we have some very serious challenges, and there is a ton of stuff that is out of our immediate control. But you and I can still be individual beacons of truth and light and understanding and wisdom as to why freedom matters, why the the protection of our natural rights is such an essential part of our freedom. It's not that hard of a message to sell to people, but actions actually do speak louder than words in this regard. Because there are politicians who will stand up every single election season and they'll say the right words and people will swoon and they'll, you know, they'll ooh and ah, well, you know, he really believes in freedom. He's really going to save us this time. Just keep in mind that most of the problems we're facing right now are political in their origins. And pouring more politics on top of it isn't going to fix it. It's like putting gas on a fire to try to put it out. Politics just adds fuel. It's not that the problems aren't real. They're real. They need to be solved. But there have to be better ways to go about solving those problems. And I'm not saying this like I have a bunch of inside information that, ho, 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 if only you knew what I know. But I am going to say this. I'm going to drop a big, uh, big vague hint here. I am working with some individuals who are very much working to build what comes next, meaning they are actively planning and, and working to, to have the answers that will take us safely through the next 50 years. And guess what? A lot of what they're suggesting is not, and then we'll have this government program and we'll just elect this person and put me in charge. It really comes down to understanding principles of self-governance and implementing those and solving problems at the lowest possible level community-wise rather than turning to a politician hat in hand and begging them to come save the day. 
So, yeah, I see the challenges. I feel the pressure, too. And there's times where I'm, like, right on the brink of despair. But then I remember there are, there are people who are, are very actively working on building what comes next. And I think with God's help, what comes next may actually be an improvement for what we have right now. That's not a very big order to fill, right? <laughs> I've got a link to Paul Rosenberg's article in the show notes. Check it out at thebrianheidshow.com. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Please check out the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. You will find multiple articles linked there where you can uh, dig a little bit deeper into some of the various topics discussed on this program. My goal is not to tell you what to think, but to give you some uh, pretty good resources to work from and let you go out there and vet the information and figure out for yourself what it's all about. And I'm grateful for some of the resources for wrong thinkers that are available to us today. Carrie McDonald, who writes for the Foundation for Economic Education, is one of my most trusted resources And I love her take on uh, the battle over the amount of influence that parents may have on their child's school curriculum. You've noticed, of course, that that, uh, that's kind of an intensifying battle right now. And the Washington Post had an editorial recently that asserts parents have no right to shape their kids' curriculum. Isn't that interesting? Well, here is what Carrie McDonald says in response. She says, we shouldn't be too surprised that the ongoing exodus from public schools is leading those loyal to government-run schooling to go on the offensive. A new Washington Post op-ed is leading the charge, boldly declaring in its headline, parents claim they have the right to shape their kids' school curriculum. They don't. Now, the two authors, Jack Snyder and Jennifer Berkshire, clearly fear the collapse of public schooling if parents gain access to more education choices. So they're attacking parents for having the audacity to think they could actually make such choices. The authors sneer at parents for challenging experts like them who clearly know more about raising and educating children than any parent. Indeed, they scoff at political campaigns that tout parental rights and slogans that suggest parents matter. The writers further allude to ignorance of parents who might have misgivings about their children being taught such things as critical race theory in schools. The Post authors write, In framing our public schools as extremist organizations that undermine the prerogatives of family, conservatives are bringing napalm to the fight. They criticize the growing favorability and expansion of school choice policies in many states, including education savings accounts, vouchers, tax credit programs that allow education dollars to follow students instead of funding bureaucratic school systems. And Carrie McDonald says, it's understandable that they're on alert. Decentralizing education funding is something that nearly three-quarters of Americans now support. And she's got a link to the poll that seems to demonstrate this. So it's no wonder that those scrambling to keep hundreds of billions of dollars in annual taxpayer money tied to government-run schooling would be quick to throw stones at those suggesting another way. 
Rather than admitting their greed, the Post authors chastise parents for believing that they might, in fact, know what's best for their children, or, God forbid, might even have a different viewpoint on education than that which the government and the experts deem proper. When do the interests of parents and children diverge, the authors ask? Generally, it occurs when a parent's desire to inculcate a particular worldview denies the child exposure to other ideas and values that an independent young person might wish to embrace or at least entertain. End quote. Now, Kerry points out, they say this without the slightest acknowledgement that in many of our country's public schools, teachers and staff members are actively inculcating a particular worldview that, that excludes recognition of other ideas and values, especially those on the political right. It was ideological inculcation that led a Nevada mother to sue her mixed-race son's school over its critical race theory curriculum that elevated racial identity over individuality. And she says it was also this type of left-leaning indoctrination that led a Rhode Island mother, Nicole Solis, to seek access to public records regarding the curriculum her public elementary school child was receiving. Solis told Fox and Friends back in June, I was told that they refrained from using gendered terminology in general terms of anti-racism. She says, I was told that the kids in kindergarten are asked what, they co- what could have been done differently at Thanksgiving. And this struck me as a way to shame children for their American heritage. Now, the Rhode Island Teachers Union was so angered by this mother's request for curriculum transparency that they filed a lawsuit against her in August. Now, Carrie McDonald points out, the Post article comes on the heels of one of the largest drops in U.S. public school enrollment in history, at least in modern history. Catalyzed by the coronavirus response that shuttered most schools last year, the homeschooling rate tripled from its pre-pandemic levels to over 11% of U.S. school children. Black homeschooling families led the way, experiencing a five-fold increase in homeschooling numbers in 2020. Other families fled public schools for private schooling or delayed early school entry for their young children. And despite schools being open this fall for full-time in-person learning, the public school enrollment decline continues. She says Los Angeles Public Schools, for example, lost 4.76% of their student population last year. And they lost 6% this year. Homeschooling remains popular throughout the country this fall, and private schools report ongoing enrollment increases. Kerry says the large number of families who've fled public schools for private education options in the last 18 months reveals that parents are more empowered than ever to find the best educational fit for their children. They're no longer satisfied with assignments. Parents want choices. The Post authors decry these choices, saying conservatives want a privatized system, one in which families, not taxpayers, would bear the cost of education. And governance would happen through the free market rather than democratic politics. Now, she says the free market expands choices in education, offering variety, personalization, and entrepreneur-led innovation, just as it does in all other sectors of the economy. Families have diverse needs and preferences, and one-size-fits-all government-run schooling doesn't meet all of those needs or satisfy all of those preferences. As the Nobel Prize-winning economist F.A. Hayek wrote in The Road to Serfdom, 
our freedom of choice in a competitive society rests on the fact that if one person refuses to satisfy our wishes, we can turn to another. But if we face a monopolist, we're at his mercy. And she says parents are increasingly demanding freedom of choice in education, and the monopolists, well, they're right to be worried. Isn't it interesting how that uh, battle has intensified? I mean, there's, there's some really ugly stuff that has been going down in terms of, uh, of how parents who, who express interest in their kids', uh, their kids uh, you know, school curriculum are being portrayed. In fact, it's not a, an exaggeration to say they're being portrayed as, as terrorists. Listen to this supercut of school officials to parents saying, back off and hand over your kids. Spewing parents outside of these schools. Individuals intent on creating chaos for the sake of creating chaos. These actions could be the equivalent to a form of domestic terrorism. This becomes a security crisis in a sense for the nation. This may also mobilize even more law enforcement to to be at these meetings. It is dangerous to our children when the parents themselves are the school bullies. I think one of the worst things is the actions at the board meetings. Uh, You know, the the calling of names, you you know, tyrant, Marxist, communist. We've never seen anything like we're seeing at these school boards now. What on earth has happened in this country? Sometimes they're not even talking. They are yelling and creating chaos. Things have become so scary at these meetings. I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. New laws may be necessary. There's always the possibility uh, that people will face criminal prosecution for this kind of conduct. The FBI and federal law enforcement is tailor-made for that kind of national-level coordination with state and local police. The attorney general has can put out a letter, they will take actions they take. What does it mean that something that is generally boring and neutral, like a school board meeting, has become a locus for violence? You look at the rage, the anger, you think, what is this doing to the children in those homes and their mental health? We have a board of ed working with the local school boards to determine the curriculum for our schools. You don't want parents coming in in every different school jurisdiction. And they want to shut down our schools and, you know, move kids over to charter schools and private schools um, without the oversight of the state. And that's wrong. Wow. (laughs) I mean, well, okay, I got to give them credit. At least they're being open there. But uh, they seem to be forgetting one really crucial factor. Whose children are they? And I know that they're the, well, what do you think these kids are, Brian? Are they parents' property? I wouldn't call them a piece of property, but it seems like the, it seems like these, these uh, politicians and these educational bureaucrats, they seem to think these kids are somehow their property. And yet we're supposed to have this blind spot that believes, well, if the state's doing it, then it must be okay. Look, I think there's a lot of conflict here, but I think it's because We have allowed the school system to become so politicized that essentially it's becoming an indoctrination center. And it's absolutely the prerogative of parents to stand up when their children are being indoctrinated with harmful ideas and to say, I don't want that for my kid. That's not a terroristic response. That's good stewardship. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. A quick shout-out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. Look, if you are lucky enough to be moving to the great state of Utah, and there are a ton of people making their way into the Beehive State right now, First of all, congratulations, but uh, good luck, too, on finding a home. The real estate market has been incredibly busy. Red hot is about the mildest description I can come up with. And here's here's the thing. If you go to buy a home, you find one that you really love, you cannot hesitate. You better have your financing squared away right then and there, or it's going to be gone before you can turn around. This is where the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage comes in. Heather has been helping people for decades. She knows what the lenders need. She knows what the borrowers need. And she can make this happen when time is of the essence. Now, you can call Heather at 703-4522. That's area code 435-703-4522. Her office is at 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. Heather's NMLS ID is 715-386 and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So in the last segment, we were talking about parents being seen and in some cases considered possible domestic terrorists for standing up for their kids and standing against some of the things that are being taught in their kids' schools. That's kind of an escalation. And the fact that you have federal law enforcement mobilizing to address the threat of parents disagreeing with the imposition of various uh, far-left social justice programs in their public schools, well, that's more than just a little disturbing. i got a great article here from Mark R. Schneider. This is from AmericanThinker.com. And the title is, Are Parents a National Security Threat? So if you've been hearing bits and pieces about this but wanted to know, okay, how bad is it really? Mark Schneider breaks it down really well here. He says, in case you've not heard, the United States Department of Justice has mobilized against a new and unprecedented threat of criminal conduct facing the nation. So grave is this menace that the FBI has marshaled the National Threat Operations Center, the DOJ's Criminal Division, National Security Division, Civil Rights Division, and Executive Office for U.S. Attorneys, the FBI, the Community Relations Service, and the Office of Justice Programs. Holy team of bureaucrats, Batman. Now, Mark Schneider says, what has provoked such a massive federal response? Is it the mass infiltration of our southern borders, cartel criminal enterprises, child sex traffickers, Antifa-inspired riots in our inner cities, or the biggest jump in American homicide rates in 60 years? Sorry, but none of these actual woes are considered sufficiently serious for such sweeping federal action. It's taken something far more ominous. Parents of school-aged children. Specifically, the DOJ is worried about vocal parents at school board meetings upset over critical race theory indoctrination being imposed on their kids at public schools. It's true. He says all of this was outlined in a release from the DOJ's Office of Public Affairs and a memorandum from Attorney General Merrick Garland. Now, supposedly the DOJ's action was prompted by a letter addressed five days earlier to President Biden from the National School Boards Association, citing what it claimed were acts of violence against interstate commerce by angry parents. Such heinous actions, said the NSB, could be the equivalent to a form of domestic terrorism, which required a coordinated federal response. 
and the NSPA also urged assistance from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, the U.S. Secret Service, and the U.S. Postal Service to intervene against threatening letters and cyberbullying attacks. Finally, it urged that federal law enforcement mount Patriot Act investigations against these ostensible parent terrorists. Now, by way of reminder, Congress enacted the Patriot Act after 9-11 to stop future foreign terrorist attacks from happening on American soil. And it defines terrorism as unlawful acts of violence or acts dangerous to human life intended to intimidate or coerce a civilian population or to affect the conduct of government by mass destruction, assassination, or kidnapping. So Mr. Snyder asks, does the shoe fit? The NSBA letter cited nothing even close to the actual incidence of domestic terrorism, let alone conduct warranting investigations under the Patriot Act. What it did describe were examples of either trespass or disorderly conduct and some angry emails. Notwithstanding, the Biden administration and its compliant DOJ went all in. In less than five days from the receipt of the NSBA's letter, the DOJ had analyzed, crafted, and issued its response acceding to all of the NSBA's requests. Now, Schneider says if that seems fishy, now it probably is. Indeed, it appears that the DOJ was just waiting for the right cause celeb to launch an already prepared legal broadside against parents. Did the NSBA letter serve as the, as the planned pretext? That's the charge attorney Reed Rubenstein of America's First Legal Foundation, or AFL, made in a letter to Inspector General Michael E. Horowitz, asking for a formal investigation into the matter. According to Rubenstein, in early September, Biden administration stakeholders held discussions regarding avenues for potential federal action against parents with a key Biden Domestic Policy Council official, Jane Doe No. 1, and White House staff, John Doe No. 1. Stakeholders also held discussions with senior department officials and others in the White House separately expressed concern regarding the potential partisan political impact of parent mobilization and organization around school issues in the upcoming midterm elections. Furthermore, alleges Rubenstein, Biden administration officials developed a plan to use a letter from an outside group, not the usual suspects, as pretext for their federal action to chill, deter, and discourage parents from exercising their constitutional rights and privileges. Now, there's more, and he actually has a link to Mr. Rubenstein's, Rubenstein's letter in its entirety. Now, Mark Schneider says where this goes is anyone's guess. But the DOJ is already backtracking due to the backlash against what's rightly viewed as a federal government effort to chill the First Amendment protections of freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, or the right to petition the government for redress of grievances. That's kind of a big deal. Attorney General Merrick Garland did not help himself when he appeared to concede during questions from the House Judiciary Committee that there likely was communication between the DOJ and White House on the NSBA letter before the DOJ mobilized. I'm sure that the communication from the National Association of School Boards was discussed between the White House and the Justice Department, and that's perfectly appropriate. End quote. Well, such communication is further evidenced in a string of emails between the Biden administration and the NSBA obtained by Parents Defending Education. 
Now, the outrage over these revelations has been such that the NSBA issued a public mea culpa, flatly declaring, we regret and apologize for the letter. Schneider says, we can't know if this comes out of genuine regret for their hysterical overreach or if it's a calculated, if not cynical, effort to mollify an awakened and indignant public. He says, one can only hope that the DOJ will similarly reverse course and issue its own retraction. But so far, crickets. Harry Truman famously warned, uh, once a government is committed to the principle of silencing the voice of opposition, it has only one way to go, and that's down the path of increasingly repressive measures until it becomes a source of terror to all its citizens and creates a country where everybody lives, where everyone lives in fear, end quote. Now, the Biden administration is eager to bring the weight of the federal government upon parents resisting the cult of wokeism sweeping our nation's schools. And that is an ill omen. Mr. Schneider says it shouldn't surprise us that the people most vocal about the precarious state of American liberty have been escapees from repressed societies. From Yuri Bezemenov and Natan Sharansky to Maximo Alvarez and Yonami Park, they've been sounding the alarm for decades. Add to this Jivan Fleet, a mother and survivor of Mao's cultural revolution, who warned the school board in Loudoun County, Virginia, of the divisive similarities between critical race theories, Mao's thought police. Soviet dissident and Nobel Prize winner Alexander Solzhenitsyn lamented similarly over America's decline. At an address given at Harvard 43 years ago, he warned a decline in courage may be the most striking feature that an outside observer notices in the West today. The Western world has lost its civic courage. Now, as with most prophets, Solzhenitsyn was mostly ignored. Yet if there's still hope for America today, it's coming from the very kinds of people the Biden administration seems most ready to silence. That would be parents acting upon the God-given instinct to protect the lives entrusted to them from the predations of those who mean them harm. I mean, if you're a parent, I'm guessing you probably take this kind of stuff pretty seriously. Don't be intimidated by the name-calling or the label-applying. Those are your kids. You are answerable to, answerable to your creator for how they are raised. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and thank you so much for joining us today. This is a little get-together that I hold on a regular basis to share some uh, solid information, principle-based information that hopefully takes you far beyond the shouted bumper sticker slogans that seems to dominate a lot of uh, political discourse these days. In fact, uh, longtime listeners to this program will note and attest that this is a decidedly non-political show, even though we do talk about political issues from time to time. It's uh, never from the, the standpoint of rah-rah red team or rah-rah blue team. Because it turns out more often than not, red team and blue team are just different, side, different sides of the same tyrannical coin. 
along with the fact that uh, it seems like everything that gets politicized becomes a power struggle at some level. Hey, I'm glad you're part of our audience, though. I've got some lovely show notes you can check out at thebrianhideshow.com. It's a great way to do further research on some of the different topics that come up. And I have great sponsors who make this possible on a daily basis, including MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah. Got some exciting sponsors that are going to be joining us um, in the very near future, and I hope you'll be listening and, and patronizing them. Look, I'm not telling you, hey, you need to drop everything you're doing and go buy something from these people right this second. But I'll tell you that uh, these are these are good people. They believe in the principles that, that uh, really make life worth living, and I recommend them to you as businesses that you can trust, products and services that you can trust. If you don't need them right now, maybe drop them a line and just let them know that the message is reach, their message is reaching your ears. So let's begin with uh, one of the biggest favors you can do for your children, and that is to teach them to think clearly and independently. Now, this is kind of a... This is, there's, there's a little bit of danger involved here because do I want my kids to really question everything that I say? And I know as a parent, it can be like, gosh, dang, my kid wants to argue with me on everything. But yeah, I would rather have a kid who who argues and who who stands up for his or her rights than one who just meekly bows their head. Yes, yes, whatever. I'll I'll just go along. Annie Holmquist uh, has a has a terrific piece about teaching children to recognize propaganda. And what this comes down to is it's, it's teaching your kids to sort fact from fiction. She says, when the pandemic hit, school went online and learning seemed to be thrown to the wind. As the pandemic stretched on, many teachers were loath to return to the classroom because of apparent COVID fears. Parents began to question whether teachers were really concerned about or eager to foster their children's learning, especially as they could see the learning loss that was happening, or rather learning that the, 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 the learning, rather, wasn't happening at all. Now, such fears were groundless, according to Cecily Meyert-Cruz, head of the powerful United Teachers Los Angeles Union. Meyert-Cruz scoffed at the idea of learning loss in a recent interview with the LA, with Los Angeles magazine, claiming, quote, It's okay that our babies may not have learned all their times tables. They learned resilience. They learned survival. They learned critical thinking skills. They know the difference between a riot and a protest. They know the words insurrection and coup, end quote. Now, Annie Holmquist says to the discerning reader, it's apparent that uh, Meyer Cruz could have stated the above much more succinctly by saying, our babies learned propaganda. And in fact, they have been learning that propaganda for many years. Unfortunately, we looked away, convincing ourselves that such propaganda was just in big districts like Los Angeles or New York or Chicago not in our own local middle American neighborhoods. She says, for years we kept our children in those schools, convincing ourselves they were safe, that their teachers and the curriculum they were studying were teaching them good things, that those good things would prepare them for, the, for living in a free world, able to embrace truth and recognize error immediately. Well, she says, given the accelerated rate of deception in society, it now seems clear that the schools indeed didn't prepare children to recognize propaganda. Instead, they were the ones that fed propaganda to, to children hook, line, and sinker. 
Late author and historian Richard Weaver observed this phenomenon in a 1955 essay entitled Propaganda. It's tempting to say that the only final protection against propaganda is education, Weaver said, but he said the remark must be severely qualified because there is a type of education which makes people more rather than less gullible. He says most modern education induces people to accept too many assumptions. On these, the propagandist can play even more readily than on the supposed prejudices of the uneducated. It's the independent reflective intelligence which critically rejects and accepts the ideas competing in the marketplace. Education to think rather than mere literacy should be the prime object of those seeking to combat propaganda. Isn't that a beautiful quote? Now, Annie Holmquist says, regardless of whether our children go to private, public, or even homeschool, they will inevitably be exposed to propaganda. So how do we educate our children and ourselves in the process to think and wield the sword against the enemy, this enemy? Well, she says a few ideas come to mind. First, she says, train yourself and your children to explore both sides of an argument. For example, if you think the election was stolen, examine the arguments of those who agree with you, but look also at the sources claiming to debunk such alleged conspiracy theories. Likewise, she says, if you think the COVID vaccine is perfectly safe and can't understand why people won't take it, dig into some of the scientific studies and testimonies of those who have a wary view of it. Knowing what the opposition is saying will strengthen your own arguments and make it more difficult for people to accuse you or your children of just simply being narrow-minded. Second, she says, look for logical fallacies in the information coming out of the television, the classroom, and the Internet. The fallacy detective by Nathaniel and Hans Bludorn is a fun way to introduce children to this subject. Once these fallacies are learned and digested, she says create a game by seeing how many fallacies your family can spot in a news report or a politician's speech. Finally, Annie Holmquist suggests expose children to the wisdom of the past. Just as those trained to detect counterfeit never accept fake money but only the real thing, so we must give only our children, we must only give our children good, high-quality reading material. Many of the books written today are filled with fluffy, politically correct drivel. But often books written in the past are filled with messages promoting traditional values and solid character. Place these latter books in the hands of your children and they'll soon sniff out and reject woke material. Modern education, most modern education induces people to accept too many assumptions, Weaver said. Lanny Holmquist says, buck the trend and actively ensure your children reject the propagandistic assumptions they're taught at school and in society. Now, I want to take this just one step further, and I'd like to uh, to beat the drum for just a moment here about the value, first of all, of self-study. I had the chance uh, over this last weekend to, to visit with my biological dad, and uh, one of the things that, that I found extremely admirable about him is he has a true study in his home. He uh, worked within the university, uh, university library system. I mean, he's, he's a very well-educated, very well-read individual. And so it was kind of neat 
to see, first of all, all the books uh, that he had around his home. But uh, when he showed me his study, I was like, you know what? This is such an improvement to, to the man cave, you know, with the, the air hockey table and the big screen TV and a bar and, you know, all the cool doodads, you know, of how to uh, entertain yourself in your leisure time. But that habit of self-study is essential to any people who want to be free. And I'm not just talking about you should be reading political philosophy every time you have a spare moment. That's important, too. But you need to be looking at, I mean, you need to be reading your scriptures. If you're a person of faith, you need to be in touch with, uh, with history. And yeah, you should expose yourself to, for instance, the great books of Western civilization. Now, if you're like me, the first time you crack open one of those books, the first realization you're going to have is, this stuff is way over my head. That's okay. The way you become a more clear and independent thinker is by exposing yourself to things and to ideas that are over your head, that require effort to understand and to, uh, to put into action. You might break a sweat. I know I have multiple times trying to read these books that were above my understanding. But I've noticed something. As you persist in your efforts, as your understanding grows, your ability to sort fact from fiction grows as well because you're training your thinking. Just a little something to consider. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Okay, I've got something truly controversial to send your direction. I was going to apologize in advance, but I think I'll send it first and then maybe apologize later. So here's a question for you. What if the right speed limit is really just how fast you're willing to drive? See, did you see those knees jerk, you know, right around the room? Wow, what? What are you talking about? Eric Peters from epautos.com has uh, a very interesting take on speed limits. And it's going to make some people uncomfortable, other people maybe nodding vigorously in agreement, but I like what he says here, and, and whether you agree or not, this is a perspective worth considering if just to have a more well-rounded understanding of speed limits. Eric Peters says, people will never agree what the speed limit should be which you'd think would raise questions about why there are speed limits at all. He says it's an odd business, this top-down imposition of one-size-fits-all, when it's obvious it fits almost no one. He says even the most ardent defender of speed limits is usually guilty of speeding. In other words, he at least occasionally drives a little faster than whatever the arbitrarily decreed fastest allowable speed is. And such people will defend their speeding as being reasonable while decrying those who speed a bit more. This being as arbitrary a standard as the speed limit itself. Now, it's funny. He includes in the, this article a link to a short video from uh, the late uh, comedian George Carlin, who explained it best in one of his rants on the subject, which it's, it's beautiful. Everyone who drives slower than you is an idiot. Everyone who drives faster is a maniac. 
Now, it's painfully funny, says Eric, because it touches truth like a dentist touches a nerve with his drill. We laugh because we are at some level aware of our own idiocy. That's the art of comedy. So the question isn't what the speed limit should be, which is to say, how fast should everyone be allowed to drive? He says it ought to be, how fast should you drive? And this is the part that's going to tie some people's brains in knots, but Eric says, this size will not fit all when it comes to answering that question. How fast should you drive? Well, just as the clothes you wear don't fit all either, they fit you. You chose them for that reason. You wouldn't choose clothes that don't fit you. And if someone told you you had to wear clothes that didn't fit you, well, then you'd know you were either in boot camp or in prison. Well, he says the road shouldn't be like either one of those places. When it is like them, the result is frustrating, boring, dangerous, and unjust. Now, he says it's frustrating and it's boring to drive at a speed much lower than you can safely drive. And most people know perfectly well what that speed is already because that's how fast they do drive, no matter the speed limit, which they obey only when necessary. Not because they feel the need to, and this is an important difference. He says, this is actually the way speed limits are supposed to be set. It's called the 85th percentile standard. And it's derived by taking note of how fast the majority of of drivers naturally drive on a given stretch of road. The posted limit is set such that the majority of drivers aren't speeding or not by much. Now, that's an interesting admission in that it suggests formal speed limits aren't needed as most drivers will not drive faster than their own limits, even if there's no law forbidding it. For the same reason, he says, it's not unnecessary to, it is rather unnecessary to pass laws forbidding people to swim who cannot. Eric says most people have more respect for their safety than the law. And when there's a conflict, it's their safety that's going to carry the day. Now, of course, everyone has a different gauge as regard to what is safe when it comes to driving and otherwise. Is it safe to go for a five-mile run on a cold winter's day? Well, he says, not if you're not used to such things and can do them safely. Is it safe to drive faster than whatever the sign says you may? If you can do so safely, if you know the road, know your limits, and don't exceed them, well, then he says it may well be, just as it may well be unsafe for a different person to drive the speed limit, which is above their ability to safely drive. He says what's not safe for everyone is expecting everyone to drive the same speed. It engenders the frustration and boredom mentioned above. And both of these things are almost certainly greater threats to safety than not minding exactly what the totem pole by the side of the road says. I think he has a really good point here. Bored drivers are inattentive drivers. Their attention wanders from the road to what's on the radio. They play with their phones. Cruise control is arguably the most dangerous safety device ever installed in a car, right after the automatic transmission. Might as well tuck a pillow behind the driver's head. Eric Peters says it's asking for trouble. For when attention is needed, as in right now, it often takes a vital moment or two for the non-attention-paying driver to refocus it, which by which time it's already often too late. Now, it's difficult to fall asleep when you're occupied, as when actually driving. You necessarily focus on what you're doing when you're driving at a speed that's not boring because it is the speed you can drive when half asleep, using your legs to steer, 
driving faster is safer for you. Punishing you for it makes about as much sense as punishing someone who works out because he's in better shape than people who don't work out. Now, it's also frustrating, another dangerous thing. Arbitrary speed limits result in inconsiderate driving. Drivers who won't yield to faster-moving traffic. After all, they say, I'm doing the speed limit. The result? Increased tension generally, also tailgating and swerve passing. Neither the former nor the latter is justified any more than obstructing faster-moving traffic, but the point is that mindless reference to the speed limit is what lays down the conditions leading to both. Eric Peters says these conditions would largely dissipate if, rather than mindless obedience to speed limits, people practiced mindfulness and adjusted their driving to syncopate with the ebb and flow of traffic. But the most destructive consequence of one-size-fits-all is arguably the injustice of the thing, of punishing people with tickets and insurance premiums jacked up on the basis of such tickets for nothing more than speeding. By equating this with dangerousness, which is silly, and everyone knows it, they just disagree over the threshold at which speeding becomes dangerous, as well as unjust by any fair standard. Because it's fundamentally unjust to punish people when they haven't harmed other people. Now, Eric says, whether you feel they might have and regard that as sufficient is monstrously unjust because the principle behind it opens Pandora's box to punishing people for any harm someone else feels they might cause. So he says, by now, everyone who's still thinking straight or even just thinking at all ought to be able to see the danger of that, which far exceeds the danger of me driving faster than you feel comfortable driving or the other way around. I know, and I have friends who are, you know, like highway patrolmen and so forth, that perhaps they would disagree with this. Talk to somebody, though, who drives for a living. Truckers, uh, you know, somebody who's behind the wheel a lot. Delivery people. Most of them will tell you that the speeding driver or the person who is going faster than the rest of traffic isn't necessarily the one who's, who's making things more dangerous. As one trucker put it to years ago, I was having a, uh, an on-air argument with my co-host, uh, who was, was uh, at that time very much of the soccer mommy mentality. And, you know, well, uh, those speed limits are there. They're supposed to be obeyed, and they're, they're protecting people from those speed demons who are out there making our lives more dangerous. And I maintained it's not the speeder you got to worry about. It's the person who's driving slow. They're the ones forcing everybody else to adapt and adjust to, to their actions. And a trucker called in and he said, here's the thing about the speeders. They're gone. They, they, they pass you and they are gone and it's just not a big deal. But it's the slow driver, the inattentive driver, the lollygagger, the Sunday driver. That's the one you got to watch out for. Because they're the one who slows people down, backs up long lines of traffic and then is oblivious to it. You don't have to agree, but there's some food for thought. Thank you for hearing me out on this one. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out here for 
My friends at LifesavingFood.com, this is food storage for your peace of mind. You know, the uh, supply chain breakdowns that we have been seeing, the, the empty store shelves you're encountering, depending on where you live, it's affecting a lot of different industries. And yes, it's even hitting the uh, food storage industry as well. Now, I don't tell you this to discourage you, but just understand, this means that uh, filling some orders could take up to a month. So if you've been thinking about, um, you know, getting some extra food storage or bolstering your existing food storage program, this, this is probably a great time to act on it. There's still plentiful supplies, but accessing those supplies is becoming more difficult. So the time to, to jump is while there is still, you know, there are stocks to draw from where you can still get a nice 20% discount. Click on the link that I provide in the show notes and you can learn a lot more there. But just understand, the window has been closing for some time. It's still closing and it will not remain open indefinitely. Make of that what you will. So I got to give a shout out to, uh, to the Babylon Bee. And I got to acknowledge it's a sign of the times that satirical sites like the Babylon Bee in many ways are a more reliable source of truth than much of the mainstream media. Here's a good uh, case in point. Headline, Pfizer claims vaccine will reduce average daily child COVID deaths from almost zero to almost zero. The story says, in a moment celebrated by all hardworking lobbyists, Pfizer announced that the COVID-19 vaccine will reduce average daily child COVID deaths from almost zero all the way down to almost zero. These are phenomenal results. Our internal studies have proven a microscopic benefit to an even more microscopic risk to children, stated D. Pimbley, head of Pfizer's Department of Propaganda, to a crowd of journalists who have not allowed their own children to bask in the warm glow of sunlight or interact with other children for almost no reason whatsoever. FDA officials praised Pfizer for fighting a disease that is the leading killer of children right after cancer, vehicular accidents, suicide, heart disease, drowning, suffocation, the flu, meteors from space, and slipping on a banana peel. Experts say the vaccine will probably kill more kids than it saves, but it's okay because science. When asked about any safety concerns, an FDA official replied, we're excited, we're excited to start giving it to them so we can find out. Now, here's the crazy thing. that There actually is an FDA official who said exactly that. Well, we're excited to start giving it to him so we can find out. Fantastic, doctor. Your child first. Look, I'm not trying to make the case here that, uh, you know, you should avoid vaccines at all costs, but this push to vaccinate kids when we have no long-term understanding of, of what this vaccine will actually do. In other words, what are the likely long-term side effects. And I'll just throw one out there that I've heard people mention. I'm not saying that I know this is the case, but uh, sterility. Could it possibly harm their their reproductive uh, organs, their ability to have children later in life? We don't know. But boy, there's sure a push, and and I think you're going to see this become another one of those dividing points. You know, critical race theory in school... Well, these parents are terrorists for standing up to the school board and saying we don't want that. Wait till parents start saying, I don't want my child to be mandatorily vaccinated before going back to school. I think it's coming. So kudos to the Babylon Bee for for some wonderful satire, but at the same time, there's a lot of truth there. 
children already are at such an entirely low, low risk of dying from COVID. Why push the vaccine? And this leads me to to the next story that I want to share with you. What do prohibition and vaccine mandates have in common? Well, for starters, both of them are ideas that some consider to be so good, they have to be implemented by force. And there's a terrific article from Emily Burns from brownstone.org. This is from the Brownstone Institute about how vaccine mandates are the new prohibition. Now, she says not all popular policies are good policies. Prohibition from 1920 to 1933 was one of the most visible public policy failures in modern history. But believe it or not, it was wildly popular. And there are lessons here. Like vaccine mandates, prohibition was rooted in the desire to achieve a positive social end. One its opponents felt couldn't be achieved without legal coercion. It was widely supported by the science of the time. The goal of prohibition was not to reduce drinking per se. Its goal was to reduce problems deemed to be caused by drinking. So things like crime, poverty, domestic violence, etc. It was here where prohibition failed so spectacularly. It exacerbated many of the ills that it hoped to not just mitigate, but to actually cure. Now, where where prohibitionists differed from our current crop of mandators was in their consideration of unintended consequences. Prohibitionists knew that prohibition would have a huge impact on federal revenues, a large portion of which came from excise taxes on alcohol. So to address this concern, they first campaigned to pass the 16th Amendment, which allowed for a federal income tax. Now, history tells us there were many more unintended consequences they missed, but they did make some effort. The unintended consequences of vaccine mandates, which seeks to ex- seek to exclude tens of millions of people from society, don't appear to have been considered at all. What are the costs of forcing people out of their jobs, especially at a time when we have a labor shortage? What are the... <laughs> Excuse me, what are the costs of firing doctors and nurses as we go into another COVID season? Or of firing police officers when the murder rate is increasing at the fastest rate in our history? What are the costs of excluding large swaths of the population from restaurants and other entertainment venues? Are those costs exacerbated when they're born disproportionately by minorities? who are vaccinated at lower levels than their white counterparts in every state in the U.S., especially in Massachusetts? Emily Burns says the state of our current debate means that these questions and many more are simply not being asked. She's got some interesting charts and graphs in this story as well, so if you want to click on the link, this is well worth your time to follow. More troubling, she says, is that if enacted... These mandates are unlikely to have any impact at all on the goal they seek to achieve, which is stopping coronavirus transmission. The CDC exploited regional differences in seasonality to demonize the unvaccinated and claimed that high vaccination rates would eliminate the disease. And it was true in the summer, the South's main COVID season, in the South, the South's main COVID season, less vaccinated states like Alabama, Georgia, and Florida had higher cases than highly vaccinated states like Massachusetts. But now that our season is approaching, that has flipped. 
We now have a significantly higher case rate than all three of those states. She says more rigorous analysis finds that higher vaccination rates do not reduce cases. In fact, they may slightly increase them, according to a recent study of 68 countries and 3,000 counties. By the way, this is something we see in real-world data as well. Emily Burns says, here in Massachusetts, our cases are currently more than two-fold higher than the same time last year. Keep in mind, that's, that's with vaccinations. In England, infection rates are higher in vaccinated than unvaccinated groups in all age groups over 30. Testing protocols that kept that exempt rather un, that exempt vaccinated people from testing mean that both of these numbers are likely understated. Now, Emily Burns says, look, we can argue to the, the degree to which vaccination rates reduce infection. The available data in the U.S. is atrocious, but it can no longer be claimed they will eliminate the disease. In Iceland, for example, which has more than 80% of its population vaccinated, cases are surging. In colleges around the country with close to 100% vaccination rates, cases are higher this year than last year. At Cornell, for example, cases are five times higher than last year at the same time. And this is despite continued indoor masking, weekly testing, and restrictions on socializing and travel. And in addition, we have, ex- we have experience with other non-sterilizing vaccines. In other words, vaccines that don't stop infection. And in no case has a disease been eradicated with such a vaccine. So, for instance, the chickenpox vaccine is a non-sterilizing vaccine. Our vaccination rate for chickenpox is more than 90%. But despite this, chickenpox still circulates widely. And for this reason, many countries, including the UK, do not vaccinate widely for chickenpox, focusing vaccines instead just on the high-risk populations. Got to come back to this article by Emily Burns from the Brownstone Institute. I'd actually recommend if you uh, have the time or interest, visit their website, sign up for their emails. Some very solid, well-researched information available to you on a very regular basis. And they've been one of the better sources to turn to in terms of good COVID information. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I've got an excellent article here from Emily Burns uh, for the Brownstone Institute. Vaccine mandates are the new prohibition. And it's funny to, to draw the parallels between these two. I mean, look, I wasn't around for prohibition, but I think the lessons are pretty solid as far as prohibition and its stated goal of we're trying to solve the evils caused by, you know, alcohol. It didn't work. People found a way. In fact, if you look at the the murder rate, the the violent crime rate during the time that prohibition was in force, it spiked. Why would that be? And it dropped after prohibition was repealed. How could that be? And the answer is, well, prohibition artificially made it more difficult for people to get their hands on alcohol. The demand was still there. There was still a market for intoxicating spirits. And with a legally 
accessible way to get your hands on, you know, your beer, your wine, your liquor. Organized crime stepped up. Why not? That artificial scarcity means that prices would artificially rise as well. And so the gangsters fought over whose territory, you know, this would be for supplying that liquor to the crowds that wanted it. I mean, it's it's the same reason that drug dealers kill each other over who gets to sell crack out there on the street corner. Prohibition went away and, uh, gee, I don't know. You know, the alcohol still does damage. It still, you know, causes physical harm. It can cause societal harm. But you don't see beer truck drivers shooting it out over which store gets to carry their particular brand of beer. There's a pretty good lesson in that. It puts the responsibility back on the people to decide what they will do, what they will consume, what their behavior will be. And for the record, I think people should be held strictly accountable for their behavior. Someone gets drunk and disorderly, they ought to be held accountable for it. They get drunk and cause harm behind the wheel, absolutely, they should be held accountable for it. Prohibition just sought to prevent it, to put in a preventive law that would keep that from happening by making it illegal for them to access something, even if they were to use it responsibly. So let's bring it back to uh, Emily's comments on the vaccine mandate. She says a mandate this draconian can surely only be considered where there is unequivocal public benefit. In other words, if you're going to force people to take the vaccine, you better be able to show the public benefit. But that bar has not been met here. In fact, she says not even close in an evolution typical of our new upside-down world, vaccinated people who are protected from who are protected from COVID-19 by virtue of their vaccines are now being told they need to be protected from unvaccinated people. Now that there's copious data available to refute this statement is unimportant because the goal here isn't to provide useful public health advice. The goal is to stoke fear and resentment until it reaches a pitch of righteous indignation. And again, here's an interesting parallel. This was tried during Prohibition, and it helped to fuel the rise of the KKK. Given the lower vaccination rates in black and Hispanic communities, one might think that this would raise a red flag or two. Emily Burns says occasionally we hear that even if vaccination doesn't reduce cases, we still need to force people to be vaccinated to avoid hospitals from being overwhelmed. This is another red herring. Our hospitals were not even close to being overwhelmed during last year's winter wave without a vaccine. During our winter peak, COVID patients occupied fewer than 13% of all beds. And staffed beds were reduced by 11%. Not exactly an action you would take if you were feeling overwhelmed. Our ICUs were so overwhelmed, they felt the need to reduce staffed beds by 30%. Now, Emily Burns says, we'll likely have a significant winter COVID surge. That should be the lesson of the summer. That even with high levels of vaccinations among vulnerable populations, cases, hospitalizations, and deaths can still surge. In fact, we're already seeing this in Europe. She says, we should be preparing for this, not pretending it won't happen due to our state's high vaccination levels. For instance, she says, in Massachusetts, we currently have 50% more COVID patients hospitalized than the same time last year, and the deaths are roughly equal. In hospitals, in order to reduce non or nosocomial 
in-hospital infections, we should be trying to identify those people who contracted COVID-19 and have natural immunity. These people are significantly less likely to become infected. We're talking 6 to 13 times less likely, and hence less likely to to transmit COVID-19 to vulnerable patients than a vaccinated person, person rather, who was never infected. But instead, we're firing these people if they've chosen not to get vaccinated, as well as show as uh, these scores, despite scores of studies showing that uh, uh, vaccination of previously infected people provides no additional protection and puts recipients at higher risk for adverse events. Emily Burns says to the extent that there are at risk people who are not vaccinated. We should attempt to convince those people to get vaccinated. But mandates and coercion are not the way. The sad truth is that our public health officials have so damaged their credibility with their constant stream of noble lies that doing this will be very, very hard. But she says, here's what could work and for whom. Before we go about trying to convince unvaccinated people to get vaccinated, we first need to understand their reasons for not getting vaccinated. And she says, as best as I can tell, these are the main reasons people choose not to get vaccinated and and the likelihood of persuading them. So the reason being like somebody says, uh, well, my reason is I already got COVID. If they're young and healthy, they don't need persuading. If they're old or comorbid, they don't need persuading. There's those who don't perceive COVID as a threat. They could be persuaded. No long-term safety data cannot be persuaded if you're young and healthy, but uh, could be persuaded if you're old and have comorbidities. Concern about adverse events. Young and healthy could be persuaded, as could old and those with more more, uh, comorbidities. Religious objections. Interestingly, interestingly, on both of these, unlikely to persuade for young and healthy and old and comorbid as well. Distrust of government and public health. People young and healthy could be persuaded, as could those who are old and comorbid. Believe masks provide equivalent protection. Some people could be persuaded, as whether they're young and healthy, as could those who are old or comorbid. Now here's her point. Naturally acquired immunity appears to be more, both more durable and effective, especially at reducing infection. So it hardly seems necessary to focus our efforts on persuading these people to get vaccinated. She says, earlier I noted that black and Hispanic people are less likely to have been vaccinated. And it's also worth noting that they've been infected at far higher rates and thus have far higher rates of natural immunity, 30 to 50% higher than whites and more than twice the rate of Asians. She also says, nor should we be focusing our efforts on the young and healthy. The FDA estimated the risk of COVID-associated death for a healthy 30-year-old to be You ready for this? 0.0004%. 1 in 250,000. Substantially less than their risk from flu, car accidents, suicide, drug overdose, and a whole host of other things. So given this, her recommendation is we should narrowly tailor our efforts to reach those groups who are at risk but remain unvaccinated. And here are five actions she says could help. Number one, Remove the threat of mandates. There's a small group of people at risk and whose principal reason for not getting mass, getting vaccinated is because they do not want to capitulate to the coercion now being applied. In other words, they're refusing on principle. She says some of these people, I believe, would benefit 
from being vaccinated. But removing the threat mandates, we remove this objection for these people. Secondly, the CDC acknowledging and apologizing for repeated lies, overstatements, failures, politicization, and general incompetence. More than any one thing, that would help to restore trust. Because there's a group of people who won't do anything the CDC recommends until the CDC comes clean and acknowledges its many errors. Number three, providing comorbidity-based relative risk. Whether from laziness or incompetence, she says, the CDC has not provided age and comorbidity-based risk stratification for COVID. Number four, drop the whole my vaccine protects you rhetoric. And finally, number five, she says, be honest about masks. Persuasion is such a different tool than coercion. Even when it comes to normal childhood vaccinations, she says there's very little difference in vaccination rates in states without exemptions and states that have soft mandates that allow for religious and philosophical exemptions. So it's time for us to stand with family, friends, and neighbors, not with politicians and bureaucrats who are trying to blame them for their own failures. We need to return to a society based on trust, transparency, and accountability rather than this new model of coercion, censorship, and scapegoating. What a great article. This is The Brian Hyde Show.